0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nature Versity podcast. Today, I am joined with Sheila Hargis from Travis Audubon. And I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your day to come down here and do this. Um, We just like to tell stories about nature in any way, shape or form. And mostly we like to hear stories. And I'm sure you've got a wealth of information from all of your experiences. So Sheila, tell us about yourself.
1: Well, I've lived in Austin since 1991. Um, I grew up in East Texas in Nacogdoches. Um, My family had lake houses and quote-unquote farms, and so I was out in nature a lot. Um, I'm now totally obsessed with birds and have been for quite a long time, Uh, but somehow I missed the birds growing up in East Texas. I was very much into the mammals and such, but somehow, I I don't know how, but I missed all those amazing birds that live in East Texas.
0: Sure. I think they're, uh, I like to call birds the messengers of the woods. That's what I call them.
1: (laughs) They're super cool. Whatever you call them.
0: (laughs) I I like that they are, you know, doing something out there that, I don't know how to say this. They're living their life in such a way that we're trying to study them, but it's so deep to their behavior. It's so complex. And um, that's what I want to talk to you about today is just a bunch of different things like that. Like, do they mate for life and just all these questions. So you grew up in Nacogdoches and you were into mammals, you said. What kind of mammals were out in Nacogdoches area?
1: Well, I was obviously a lot of squirrels, but um, back then I didn't know that it was a bad thing to raise baby raccoons. So I had a few baby raccoons. Yeah, how'd Um, you get a hold
0: of baby raccoons?
1: Well, this was a long time ago. No worries. And they were, um, you could buy them at flea markets.
0: Oh, interesting. I I hope that's
1: not the case anymore, but yeah. I'm sure in some
0: places that it is. It's it's a fad. I think there's a lot of TikToks and Instagram people who have baby raccoons. Um, A friend of mine who had one said they're absolute disasters after they get to be a certain age. He said they just tore everything up. And yeah, they're
1: very fascinating. They're very curious and their their hands or, or paws are just really like our skin nearly. And they will wash their food. It's really, really fascinating. But yeah. yes, once they got to be adults, they 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 were too much. How many did
0: you have? Two. Oh yeah. Did you what were their names?
1: Oh man, I don't remember. <laughs> no, no
0: worries. And how long, how long did you keep them?
1: Well, probably a few months a because few. we got you know, we got got them when they were very small and then once they really became adults which is not too long yeah they were too much
0: they are they get into everything uh there's some funny videos out there of people who own them and just the things they do they they, like one got up in that air vent thing and just had gone through the whole house and (laughs) destroyed from air vent to air vent and it's like oh no yeah Yeah. so definitely you would be a proponent of saying don't own wild animals like that huh
1: Yes, yes. I, I think their parents can take care of them much better than I can, that we can, right?
0: Right. And that they can take care of themselves too. Their Absolutely. instincts are so well mannered, I feel. So yeah. other than the owning raccoons, what did you ever get into wildlife tracking while you're out there? Like
1: I did not. I have uh, taken a wildlife tracking class a couple of times, actually through Earth Native Wilderness School. Oh yeah. On Bastrop. Great school. Um But, yeah, my my obsession with birds keeps pulling me away from in-depth study on that. Yeah. But it's very fascinating.
0: I I love it. That's one of my favorite things to do is to go track animals, especially mammals and particular birds. Birds get real tricky. You know, you're like, is this a great egret or a great blue heron? I don't know. I didn't see the bird make the track. Because they're Mm -hmm. so similar in their morphology. And so... When you were growing up, you're deep into nature, you're out exploring a lot. Did that kind of set any foundation for you going into school? Were you like, I want to be a biologist or a research, uh, you know, for biology or anything like that?
1: Unfortunately, no. (laughs) I wish. If I had it to do over, I would absolutely take that route. Um, But when I was like in, in, you know, high school, I was either going to be a vet or a cop. And then I got involved with Police Explorers, and I took the cop route.
0: Oh, really? So you were a former police officer
1: mm, for a while.
0: Really? What's a while?
1: <laughs> About four years. Oh,
0: okay, okay. And where 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 did you do that at?
1: Uh, two years in uh, Lufkin and two years in Nacogdoches, both in East Texas.
0: Yeah. When were you fresh out of college, like in your twenties, when you enrolled in the police academy? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, I have a criminal justice degree, and then I went off and I was a cop for four years and kept burning out and. Went off to do other things, but then came to Austin and found um, crime analysis at Austin Police Department. And so that's what I've been doing for nearly 23 years now.
0: You're still a crime analysis.
1: Yeah, not a cop. I don't have a badge or a gun, but I've still helped, you know, put bad guys in jail.
0: Wow. Find
1: ID the bad guys and put them in jail.
0: I suddenly want to have a different podcast with you now (laughs) (laughs) because I've got a million questions about that, too. That's really, that's cool, Sheila. I had Um, no idea. I'm
1: not sure how much nature related that one is no but. <laughs> not of
0: course of course not but still I just like hearing stories my friend Ann she's an EMT and she's just got the wildest stories mm. about these encounters and so like I said I'm just a big nerd for hearing stories. I think that's a part of our culture that we're really missing these days. I think movies and television has kind of replaced storytelling, but now podcasts are obviously coming back. And that's been my goal was I started going to um, these things called primitive skills gatherings. And I just met the most amazingly fascinating people and hearing their stories. I'm like, I want a lot more people and and I don't know if that's a problem right like making them come on this podcast and tell their stories because I enjoyed them so much but a lot of people have been listening so yeah like once again thanks for being on and sharing stories with us but now now my criminology brain just started ticking (laughs) no so back to birds back to birds focus Chris
1: birds are cooler they are (laughs) and
0: you know one of the things just tangenting off that criminology thing is I think think birds do things and uh, I'll give you an example. We saw a bunch of feathers. They were from a white-winged dove. They were sitting underneath this tree as we were walking by and I stopped all the kids and I was like, all right, crime scene. What happened? And they kind of had to pull that whole thing apart and they concluded that it was probably some kind of hawk because of the way the feathers were scattered in dispersed in such a wide space because if it had been a cat, the feathers would have been more isolated, right? Mm -hmm. Into a tinier area Mm -hmm. where they sat and plucked. So they had to come up with a prosecution and a defense and uh, all this stuff. So I really think birds helps kids understand that process. If that might be their passion one day, you know? So did um, leading out of, you know, criminology, did that, what, I'm guessing what I'm asking is, what got you into birds? Like all of a sudden?
1: Yeah. So many years later, I think I was in my mid 30s when um, my roommate at the time had had uh, grown up in Nebraska, and she suggested that we put out a a feeder to attract the fin- the goldfinches. And so we did. We put out a thistle feeder, and they and they came in. And that you know for some reason, I think it was just kind of the timing was right. Um, And so I ended up taking an intro to birds class through UT informal classes with Fred Marie Webster. And I look back and I think my my target bird or my trigger bird, right, was a painted bunting that we saw. It's like a male painted bunting. And it's just like, okay, I have lived in Texas, I've been out in nature, and how in the heck have I missed this amazing bird?
0: Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know what a painted bunting is, it is the most what, four or five colored different bird, blue, yellow, red, all in, in, encapsulated into one bird, green, and it, the males are. The females are a little of the drab brown, but they are a magnificent spotting when you get to see one, especially up close. They come land near you because you've attracted them. How do you feel about bird feeders and attractors? Is that a positive, a net positive, or a net negative in your opinion?
1: Well, I have feeders in my backyard, so I see it as a net positive, um, and I have... One day last week, I had at least three different male painted buntings coming in my yard and multiple females and young birds in my yard. Um, So, yeah, I, I love I think, you know, one of the things that I love about birding is that you can do it in so many ways. You can you can just casually watch birds wherever you happen to be. You can put up feeders and not go anywhere else and still have an amazing time. Or you can travel all over the world and, and, you know, look at target birds.
0: Yeah. Either way. Anyway, it's good. But you don't think that um, feeding, because I've heard, uh, we're going to get down into these myths down here later on, but I've heard people say things like causing, you know, displacing food sources, other food sources, is a net negative to birds. Because if suddenly you go on vacation and they're dependent on that, food source and you don't refill it or whatever it may be it might cause harm but when you're in your opinion overall do you think we're helping birds by doing bird seed feeders and all that stuff
1: i think we're helping us (laughs) you know i think i mean i seriously i think that there is a mental or an emotional connection with birds that makes my life so much better yeah than it would be if if i didn't um habitat destruction is a huge threat to birds so if we you know mow down all of the natural habitat and think that we can replace them by feeders that's that's not going to work it's not going to be the same right um in some ways because not all birds eat seed right a lot of them eat insects and if we've taken out all of the plants that you know kind of <laughs> provide those insects then um then we're never going to replace that
0: yeah absolutely um, yeah that that was a that was very beautiful the way you just put that cuz that's the big point is that we need to stop causing habitat destruction and yeah that was well done <laughs> i was like dang that just checkmated all my <laughs> my theories about are we are we hindering or helping but um well
1: and and i would say that you know i think the best case scenario right my my house is already there, was already there long before I got there. So the best situation, in my opinion, is for me to wildscape my yard and to put as many native plants in there as I can that produce, you know, that provide the habitat for the insects or cover for birds. Um, And then if I want to supplement it with feeders, as long as I take good care of those feeders and keep them clean, you know, take them down if we have, you know, some i don't know avian issue going on you oh know, sure um uh, so that they, they do concentrate the birds so they can you know pass on disease and such uh, if there's an outbreak or something um like a you know not so much avian flu i'm drawing a blank on what what i'm trying to think of but the pine siskins had it last year and and now i can't remember what it was but um Anyway, native native plants make your yard bird friendly, and then put up the feeders, but take care of them.
0: Yeah, and water. Do you have a lot of water out all over the place right now? I do. Yeah. yes, yes, and just
1: yeah, as you can imagine, in these this temperature, the birds are very attracted to that.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. We used to have a moving one, and something happened to the cable, and now I got to get that thing replaced because I love that was my favorite thing is watching the birds come to the water feeder, and of course we have the. Um, hummingbird feeders back there and what other kind of birds do you see in around your backyard besides the the buntings
1: so i'm, I'm very close to here i'm not too far away from south Al- south austin southwest austin and so i have um there was a pair of northern cardinals i ate lunch outside on my deck this afternoon or my porch this afternoon and there was male and female cardinals the female was taking a bath um there were A male painted bunting and an immature painted bunting. Then there were some lesser goldfinches. And I heard a white-winged dove vocalizing in the distance.
0: Yeah, and does it it change uh, throughout summer into fall and into the winter? You get different types of birds, certain ones you definitely see go and certain ones that come?
1: Yes, and actually the male painted bunting should probably be disappearing soon. I think maybe late July. early August they're going to go ahead and migrate but the but the um either the young or the females I can't tell them apart always but they'll hang around a little bit longer but they'll be gone pretty soon and I'll miss them greatly um but then you know when when fall gets here and winter gets here then we get other things like our our um, sparrows and so yeah start to see are definitely different birds
0: And when they leave, they depart. Are they going down to Mexico area, the equator, or are they going north? Where are they headed?
1: Well, not all of our birds migrate. Yeah. Um, And for the ones that do, it really depends on the species. Um, Like, um, you're going to push me on painted buntings. Sorry. I think they go (laughs) into Mexico and maybe a little further south. Um, But there's like our purple martins, which I hope we have a chance to talk about. They're going all the way to Brazil.
0: Wow. So. And what, I mean, how long does that take them?
1: The On the Purple Martins, mm-hmm. it takes them. Uh, so w- luckily, technology has advanced to the point that we can put little trackers on them. Like GPS units have gotten small enough that we can put them on the birds and let that bird go. And it'll migrate. Hopefully it survives. And it'll come back. Hopefully it survives. And then we can take that off and, and download the data and see the track they took and the timing that it took them. And they've been, do, uh, Purple Martin Conservation Association has been doing that since about 2007. So not a huge data set, but still well, starting to see a little bit more about how that really works.
0: Yeah. 15 and years is a lot of data.
1: Y- well, not a ton of birds. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So we're talking you know, like maybe like, a few dozen a year. Um, I, I'm not sure, but I want to say like maybe. Let's say five hundred.
0: Oh, that's still pretty good.
1: Yeah, um, but some of the findings from that is that they once they start migrating, they're they're on a mission and they can fly up to three hundred and fifty miles a day. Wow! And so they can get it. They can get to uh, South America within like six weeks, no that's... matter where they left, even if it's in Canada or you know here.
0: Yeah. And are they always traveling together?
1: They're not. Uh, that's another thing that this is showing is that, that individual birds migrate individually. Now, they come together at times, like for our roost site, but they're actually flying in as, as individuals.
0: That's incredible. And, and
1: they move around. And in South America, they'll be moving to different roosts down there, but it's like it's an individual making these decisions, not a group
0: yeah. decision. Man, that just boggles my mind to think about that. And the concept of them navigating themselves down there. How does that work for them?
1: <laughs> well, they use, yes. <laughs> How does that work, right? It's amazing, <laughs> I right? Know. And I think it's still, an, a t- scientists don't totally understand. They're learning more and more, but uh, they don't totally understand because it's just incredible, right? Um, that They l- use a lot of different cues. Like if a bird is a nocturnal migrant, then they're probably migra- navigating by the stars. Um, if they migrate during the day, maybe it's landmarks, maybe it's the sun. Uh, but they also can use, um, um, d- well, some birds can actually navigate by smell. Some use the, uh, the Earth's electromagnetic field.
0: Um, That's sun. fascinating.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's potentially a potential situation where they're using a lot of different uh, tools to navigate but but it seems like um that that birds are born with this genetic thing right this genetic aspect that says at certain time of year they get restless and the urge is to go and the urge is to go in a certain direction for a certain amount of time which would kind of get them close yeah and then I have no idea what happens from there. They I, haven't, I haven't heard. They, they're <laughs> survivalists. Like somehow they just figure it out. Yeah, yeah. But like with the purple martins, the par- the the adults go before the young. The young yeah. go later, and there's no parents to say, "Come on, little Johnny, follow me." Right. It's like somehow they just do
0: it. So. That's in that, isn't that mar- remarkable, and yes. that's I think what our attraction is in some way as scientists to these things is that mystery you know there's like a thirst for knowledge that we can't quench because there's just so many unknowns and I yes. I, I think why studying nature is the coolest thing in the world is because after you get to a certain point you have to look back and go oh wait there's micro adaptations and macro evolutions that could have taken place. And so now I've got to start all over and re-examine these bioregional areas. And so it's just a, a rabbit hole folks that if you get into becoming a naturalist and the Texas master naturalist and all of them, the Autobahn society, y'all are going to love what you I think connect with. Cause you spoke about it earlier is it helps me and I am the same. It helps me to look outside my window and see a big field where Hawks, um, they eat a lot of those hispid cotton rats back there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them back there. Mm-hmm. And my girlfriend doesn't like it because they sit on the fence right there <laughs> and they eat. And she's like, oh, this is so grotesque. And <laughs> just, I'm like, but the, who's to say that that baby hawk in the nest starving is also just as bad as that poor rat who's getting devoured, you know? <laughs> so right. we brings us to that edge of empathy always. So, Well, and and
1: I'll add one thing kind of along the same lines is that I used to, when I first got into birds, I I thought that we really had most of the answers, but the more I learn about birds and the specific species, the more I know there's so many things we don't have the answer to. So if you get into nature, there's really opportunities for you to be the person that discovers and fills in one of those little gaps that we don't know right now.
0: Absolutely. There's so much we do not know. <laughs> um, and there's you, some
1: we think we know, but we don't quite know.
0: Well, we go back and re-examine and go, <laughs> oh, this was wrong. right? Um, yeah, and so can we, you talk about um, mating in birds, in particular, any species you want to talk about, but is that a thing? Did they always mate for life? Are there more species that are prone to, you know, kind of doing like what deer do, where they have just a few different You know mates, and then they're off. Or is bird mating kind of a like humans, where we're engaged for life?
1: Some do, some do mate for life, Um, but a lot don't. Um, A lot will mate for one season, and then they go their separate ways, and then they mate again. You know, with some somebody else. Um, Yeah, I don't think it's the same. You know, bird it next time, but
0: sure. I'm curious because I've always seen like sometimes I feel like our cardinals don't migrate and I feel like I see that same pair like again and again and again all the time. So that's what I kind of my curiosity stems from is. And then I remember, man, I can't give you all the details about this, but out in Bastrop once there was all these people gathered around taking photos. And one of the ladies had said we're intrigued because this bald eagle female is no longer with this male that lives over here. And that doesn't happen very often. And I was like, what? Really? And so I don't know. Can you speak any to that?
1: Uh, well, uh, apparently there is divorce in birds. Uh, but there's also um, like, th- like the Purple Martins. They yeah. are what's in a lot of other songbird species are called um, socially monogamous. So they made up the goal is to raise their babies, get them off on their own. Well, c- well, can we, can we go X-rated here? Uh, yeah, Should we go give ahead. a warning?
0: Sure, there's a warning coming up, y'all. <laughs> go ahead.
1: <laughs> um, DNA has has shown that there's a little bit of hanky panky. There's actually a lot of hanky panky going on. That they're so they're committed to raising those young, but those young may not all be the the bird. You know, the ah, offspring of that male. Sure. And the male's off doing his own thing too. Right. So, anyway, a little so, bit of
0: so birds. Not necessarily across the board are great parents in, well, let's just take it one step at a time. Fathers, right? They don't always stick around to help rear young in the bird world.
1: They they have, yeah, different species have different strategies for raising their young. Yeah. And I, 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 I would say that it's, you know, uh, we tend to apply our... um
0: yeah, anthropomorphic perceptions. Yes, our views <laughs> of how things should
1: be to yeah. birds, and they're and they've just evolved to this is what works for them. Yeah, right. With the painted bunting, for instance, super cool, um, but he basically does nothing to when the when the female is on the nest uh, incubating the eggs. He doesn't bring her food. He doesn't incubate. Um, he will potentially take some of the young after they've fledged, left the nest. But he's, he's doing very little.
0: Yeah. And so do you think it's kind of classified, I don't know if this is true too, but um, do you think you could classify that behavior between, let's say, birds who predominantly fly and birds who predominantly live on the ground? For instance, <clears throat> purple martins, as opposed to roadrunners. Do the, you know, or chachalacas or turkeys, or those are mostly ground-dwelling birds. So is their behavior any what, sim- like similar across the board, like turkeys to roadrunners to chachalacas, comparative to like martin's cardinals do you see did you see understand that Hmm. question
1: i do i don't know the answer to it i think um i would guess that um like your ground dwelling birds yeah um i'm not sure that just uh, that 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 is a, a good way to group them right but if you if you went with game birds and you looked at um Bobwhite quail and other type of quail. You know, if you looked at these family groupings, um, or birds that were similar in their DNA and their genetic lineage, then then maybe you could draw some conclusions. Yeah,
0: I was just, I guess, asking because of the environment in which you know they're trying to meet certain needs so do certain adaptations meet those needs better because mm. they're more ground dwelling versus mm-hmm. the ones who are up high the ones who are up high are like well we can fly around and go anywhere but it's hard to like run from my partner <laughs> <She> just <laughs> chase me down i guess on these turkeys right. um but yeah have you ever have you done any studies with turkeys or any other ground dwelling um i think roadrunners runners or cuckoos right cuckoo birds
1: they're in the cuckoo family, yes. Um, I haven't really done, I think roadrunners are super cool. I think and, they're so cool. Yeah, and um, I'm always, it's always hilarious to me when when turkeys actually fly. It's like, oh yeah, they can fly.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> they have a big wingspan. <laughs> they do. They, yeah. They're pretty broad when you get them, uh, spook, spook them, and they come tearing out of the woods. Um, yeah, What what are some of your favorite places to go birding in Texas?
1: Well we, have a, um, well, we have many uh, great birding locations around Austin. Uh, one of my favorites is Commons Ford Metro Park. It's out southwest Austin on uh, Lake Austin. And um, a friend of mine was the mastermind behind a prairie restoration project there. So we ended up restoring 40 acres of prairie to a native ha- habitat. So it has like 70 or 80 species of, na- of native Wildflowers, grasses, and such, and the birds really took to that. I mean, they immediately said, "Yeah, yeah, we're on board with this. Right? Um,
0: we're coming home."
1: That's right. That's right. Um, and, and it has a diversity of habitats. So it has that prairie, but it also has along the river, and then a low woodland area. So it has lots of diversity. Um, and one area is actually um, habitat for golden cheek warblers, and sometimes sometimes oh. we have golden cheeks in there, or, or at least you know one family unit. Um, So that's probably my favorite place here. Um, Boy, I love going to the coast during spring migration. Um, I love going to the coast pretty much all the time, (laughs) if I think about it. What part Uh, of the coast
0: do you go to? Um,
1: Well, Texas has an amazing spring migration. So these birds that have migrated south, a lot of them – fly across the Gulf of Mexico on their northbound migration and depending on what that experience is maybe they have the wind helping them and it's not too arduous but maybe the wind's blowing against them and it's very arduous. In that case they will come down as soon as they hit land and so if you're on the coast when this is happening then there's just all of a sudden birds everywhere.
0: Like every type? Or well, the, just the, mainly, you know, mainly
1: the songbird types, like, okay. like the warblers and the tanagers, the orioles, the buntings and such. Um, yeah. But,
0: I didn't know they would do that. I didn't know they would land right when they see land. I thought they would at least go to a post or a tree or some kind of.
1: Well, I, I mean, unfortunately, if they've really hit bad weather and the wind's you know, fly pushing against them the whole way. Then some of them don't, ma- a lot of them don't make it, oh. but the ones that do, they come, they really come down as soon as they can. Cause they're totally exhausted. Right. Sure. Um, anyway, along the coast, the whole Texas coast is great for spring migration. I personally like the upper Texas coast, which is the Galveston and kind of East of their area. High Island is a, a well-known birding hotspot in the spring, which is East of Galveston. Um, there's also great birding in Corpus Christi area around um, during spring migration. And then the, um, you know, South Padre Island. Is also yeah. Boca so, Chica.
0: And yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: All of, all of those places.
0: We have did the um, coastal birding trail in saw like Goose Island. And we went to all those places over a course of that spring too, one March. But I don't think we were there at the right time. Um, we saw some wild gators and various places way down south at, um, oh gosh, what's that place called? Laguna Atascosa, Oh yes. I believe. There's a mm-hmm. bunch of cool animal tracks, and that's what I was mm-hmm. there to see mm-hmm. was animal tracks, but it just so happened to be all these birds that were <laughs> migrating through. We're like, these are amazing. And the one pair of bird tracks we wanted to see so bad, and we could never find one because these birds are nifty about not landing on soil or substrate or sand um were the um oh gosh what is it the ospreys mm. we could not get them to they always like every time we thought they were coming down at the beach they'd find like a rock <laughs> and they'd land on the rock so we couldn't get the tracks cuz they have very unique feet which i believe um we call zygodactyl feet mm. which is kind of like two forward two backwards like owls and roadrunners. And I wanted a picture of those osprey feet and could not find them to land on anything. We followed one for miles down the coast (laughs) and nothing. So, but we got everything else, pelican, brown pelican, white pelican, tons of cool stuff. So I, um, yeah, I wanted to know what your favorite spots are beyond um, the places that I had been to. So it sounds like High Island is the place to be. And what time of year would you recommend folks going out and visiting?
1: Mid to, well, April and May. Yeah. Um, maybe, probably the peak is like mid-April to early May. Perfect. For that time frame. But yeah. yeah.
0: And they have like a list, like a checklist on that whole area, I believe. When you go to the state parks and stuff, you can get just a little checklist. So if you're not sure what you're looking for out there, um, you can go to one of those little places and get one of those guides. And that kind of gave me a good understanding of oh, okay, now I'm going to take this list and then this field guide, and now I know what to look for when I'm on the shore and I see willets versus sandpipers versus plovers and all that. It really helped yes. kind of break down what I'm looking for because I yes. didn't know what any of that stuff was when I first started. Yeah, um, A- yeah.
1: Another good resource for that is ebird.org. Oh, okay. This is a, an online database for birders to input their sightings.
0: Oh, yes. So
1: every time I'm out birding, I've got an e-bird checklist going, and then I submit that, and that becomes part of this huge database. And so I can keep track of all my birds that I've seen and when I saw them and where. Uh, but also other people can can look at this data. And, like, if, if you want to go to Goose Island in April, you can pull um, – you can query that data and say, I want to just look at Goose Island for April and it will give you a, a checklist.
0: Oh, that is... So, I, I, sometimes I love technology. I know, right? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I always, not. <laughs> yeah, one of my <laughs> questions was uh, "What if you think that technology is leading more people towards or away from birding, what do you think about that?
1: Actually, I think, it, I think it's leading people to birding. There is a, a well, I was going to say new, but it's not that new anymore, but it's a, an app called Merlin. And it's um, Cornell Lab of Ornithology is doing oh, great, great work. Um, they, they have wonderful classes. They have the All About Birds website, which is a great resource for people. Um, but <clears throat> the Merlin app is is focused on new birders. So you can pull it up and you can take a picture of a bird, and it will, well, uh, there's several ways of using it. One is that you walk through these questions, and it'll ask you, well, what's the main color of the bird? What size is it? What's it doing? And then it will, based on your location, it will provide you a short list of species to consider. It's not saying that's what it is. You really need to do your research once you have the short list, but instead of a field guide that's you know an inch thick for yeah. you to page through, right? You have three or four or five species to look at. Yeah. You can also take a picture of a bird and upload that, and it will identify that bird for you. And now the latest um, modification or upgrade, I guess, to this to that app is that you can record the sounds, and it will it will pop up as to what it's hearing. Now it doesn't get them right all the time, but it's it's learning. Um and so, you know, as a new birder, this is a really good tool if you use it as a starting point.
0: Yeah. That's some of the coolest stuff I think about technology is how it's bridging the gap rapidly. You know, for you to go and take a bird language class and understand all these bird vocalizations and what is going on and and i don't know what that sound is that would take months and years of a lot of what i call dirt time but now we can just click and oh we were where were we oh we were in arizona i kept hearing this bird go wee 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 i was like what is that and we clicked it and it was some kind of i think it might have been a it's not a meadow lark What, what kind of bird was that i can't think of it now but it was so convenient to just Put your phone in the air and hears the sound and it tells you right away what this bird is. Um Maybe
1: you do that research, follow up. I, we, right, don't just take it at, at face value because it, it, it's still learning and it sure. still gets things wrong. Like I've been watching it recently and and go, mm, yeah, no, the mockingbird. Right, this is a great story because the mockingbird is a mimic. Oh yeah, and it can mimic. You know, it can mimic other bird songs. It can mimic. People noises, you know, like car alarms and such. You can do all. can mimic all sorts of sounds. And I was watching. I was listening and recording an amazing mockingbird. Really, really good. And he was doing white-eyed vireo, and it would pop up white-eyed vireo. It hit it. It 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 did pop up mockingbird first, I think. But then it, you know, he did a white-eyed vireo, and it popped up white-eyed vireo. He did something else. It popped up that. It's like. <laughs> Good. I've been fooled so many times by mockingbirds, so it's kind of a little bit. Um, it was nice to hear see the software get fooled, also.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you're not familiar with bird language, they say don't start with mockingbirds, and they say don't start with corvids, which yeah. are crows and magpies right. and jays and all those things. They say that you should always start with your common robins because they're the ones who really bring messages of cats and um, snakes and um, the way they spend a lot of time on the ground and different things like that. So there's actually that book over there. It's called What the Robin Knows. Have you read that one by John Young? Yes, Um, I have it
1: on my nightstand to reread it because it's it's really good. You can't
0: can't know it all. There's just so much to learn about how they present um, what's going on out there. And I think that's a, a beautiful way to get, beyond observations for those of you who are listening to this and you're like, yeah, watching birds is cool, but is there another way? Yeah, if you want to be criminologist, right? Because they're telling you what's going on out there. Hey, everybody, listen up. There's a bear coming through the woods. (laughs) If you knew that out in Yellowstone or anything and that's what Mm -hmm. you're interpreting the birds are saying, how safe would you be all the time, you know? So,
1: Well, and how much are we missing? All the time. All the time. And we just don't know their language. Yeah so but the birds know
0: the birds know (laughs) and we have to figure that out because they're not gonna tell us until we have those little chips on our head right that interpret no 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 too much technology right? right so um anywhere else that you've been around perhaps the world the united states that you just thought whoa this is an amazing place to go birding anywhere else
1: well, there's all sorts of cool places in Texas. I kind of got focused on the coast, but there's yeah. all, I mean, Texas is an amazing place to live as a birder. Um, we have the most species of any state, although California thinks they're close, but you know, whatever uh, <laughs> we got, we got the most species. Um, and, and so uh, many, many places uh, uh, across Texas. Um, I think as far as maybe, uh oh boy, it's a really hard question. As far as the most special place, I remember um, I was fortunate enough to get to go to Alaska on a birding trip, and we went to Nome, and I remember just thinking that that was a magical place. It's like the most, I don't know why, I've been to Central America and I've been to South America too, and those were amazing places. But there was something about Nome that was just like, I just felt totally a part of surrounded by nature and Mm. not surrounded by human made stuff, you know, what time of year did you go? Uh, that trip was, I think, um, late, maybe late May or early June. Wow.
0: And was there still snow on the ground everywhere?
1: Oh no, I'm sorry. It wasn't that it was actually a little bit later than, than most birding trips go. It was like, I think mid June and we came back on July the 4th. And we end, it was so cool because we ended up calling it the baby tour because everybody had their babies. Oh. And so it was like, it was perfect timing because we got to see the adults, but we also got to see them taking care of their young.
0: And what kind of <laughs> birds would you have seen up there that we wouldn't see here in Alaska?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, a lot of different um, ducks. Um, we have some birds up there that are, um, they're, they um, like the Privoloff Islands, or maybe over even into Russia. You know those birds. Wow, do, do come there, but they never come south. There's a lot of birds that that are northern birds, and they never come down to Texas. Like
0: terns and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some some types of turns, some types of goals that that we don't have down here. So a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Man, and is that what sent you up to Nome? Was to go birding?
1: Oh yes. Oh yeah, it's, it's why I went to Alaska. That yeah, that was a birding
0: trip. Wow, to Alaska. Yeah. How many birding trips have you taken?
1: Well, I've been very fortunate. <laughs> I've taken quite a few. I've been to uh, quite a few Central America countries, um, and then um, Trinidad and Tobago, South America. I went to Ecuador, and I'm just just now paid the last money for a Colombia trip in January. So very much looking forward to that
0: and when you book these trips do you have a specific list or is there birds you definitely want to see or try to see is that always the intention or is it just I want to see the countryside I also am just going to happen to see birds while I'm there
1: Oh, oh, no, no, no. I, no, no, no. I don't waste my time on things besides <laughs> birds. <laughs> I'm going to see Tell the birds. Me.
0: <laughs> Good. So you oh. have a master list of what you're hoping to see.
1: Well, like like this trip that I'm going on with um, to Columbia, it's three field guides, and it's a local tour company, uh, and they take people birding all over the world. And so I would sign up for that trip because I want to go to Columbia, and then they would say, okay, well, here's the tour. And here are the places we're going to go. And these are the expected species that we're going to be
0: looking for. Oh, that's so cool. Um,
1: and maybe sometimes I have target birds, but mainly I want to just see all the birds that are there. Yeah. Because they're all very cool.
0: Man, that's that's an interesting endeavor. See, my whole thing is I'm like, I want to go see everything. So the animal tracks, the, the animals, the birds. But I've never... I think other than going to try to do the great birding trail of Texas, other I've never had that intention to just go do birding stuff, especially to Ecuador or Colombia. That's amazing.
1: Well, we do see other things. Yeah, right. Course, and we absolutely but, appreciate the other things. It's just my, you know, my obsession says it's all about birds. Yeah. Um, but and, and there's gorgeous scenery there too.
0: Yeah. Um, so I wanna chat a little bit about um the myths that some folks have been curious about. So uh, do birds have teeth inside their beaks?
1: They do not have teeth. They, um, they have a lot of adaptations that, that leads to their ability to fly. Like if, you're, if you, you can either fly or you can have teeth. Or, well, let me say, you can either fly or you can be heavy. And so they have all sorts of adaptations like they don't have teeth because teeth are heavy. Their bones are um, not totally hollow, but they're more hollow than ours because bones are heavy. Right. Um, Yeah. So they they don't have teeth.
0: And while you were just talking about bones being heavy, I was thinking about our conversation earlier about migration and um, how birds actually fly. And this is my understanding is that the only energy they're using is when it's pulling up. The chest muscles yank the f- the wings back down. Is that correct?
1: There, there is, um, obviously, on a bird that flies a long way. Some birds don't do very little flying. Sure. Right? But some fly all the way to South America, right? <laughs> and even further. Um, but the way I understand it, so their breast muscles are really large for those birds. You know, long-distance migrants, they have very strong and large breast muscles. Huge. Right. And I think it's the, I forget which one it is, I think it's maybe the upstroke. That muscle that's pulling the wings out actually starts on the breast and goes through a hole in a bone, an opening in their bone structure so that it really is the downward flap i'm I'm getting this wrong but it but it is really the the exertion is on one of those movements you know
0: so what i'm trying to explain to listeners is that a lot of people they think birds fly with this like they would put their arms out and then flap up and down but that's not how it works y'all what actually happens is they extend up and the chest muscles yank them back down for them. So it's almost like you have rubber bands on your wrists and now try to stretch your arms apart, and they you notice how they clap back together quickly. So the benefit, I think, evolutionarily for that is the lack of energy output. Because imagine if you would have to all day, <laughs> my arms would get super tired. Right, yes. So a um, couple of other um, myths here. Birds migrate because it's cold.
1: They migrate because their food source disappears, Okay. which is related to the cold, absolutely. But if you think about, like, purple martins, all purple martins migrate <clears throat> because they eat insects. And in the winter, there's no insects or there's not enough insects. Right. So they have to go.
0: So they follow their food source. They follow their resources, basically. Mm-hmm. They don't migrate because it's cold. I right. Like that one.
1: They, also, they also will potentially migrate, or part of the reason why birds migrate is... A lot of them spend the, our winter in the tropics or South America. And, and there's, so there are a lot of birds down there during those times. And if you're trying to raise your young, you want you need more resources. And so a lot of them come north uh, up to, the, to Alaska, um, Canada and Alaska, to raise their young because there's, there's a lot of insects up there and there's a lot of space, a lot more space. Yeah. So it's kind of, a, you know, both of those things are at play.
0: I never thought about the rear, the child rearing aspect of that, where if you're <laughs> thousands of different types, well, maybe not thousands, but hundreds and hundreds of different types of birds are all congregating in this migration and you are doing the child rearing thing. Where's the space and the resources? I ne- that was one of the things I never thought about. Yeah. Um one of the other ones is people wanted to know about rice being thrown at weddings. Is that bad for birds?
1: You know, I don't I don't really know much detail about that. I, I've I think I've read enough to think that maybe it would
0: be good if we didn't do that. But yeah. I
1: don't I don't know really any details about that.
0: The question there was that it expands rapidly in their stomachs, but I would imagine that it's just the same as a seed, and any seed they eat would expand rapidly in their stomach, right?
1: Well, so let's think about the, the biology, uh, or the physiology of the bird. Um, birds don't have teeth, right? so their food moves to a crop, which is, um, a place that it can store, it can it can be, be stored there, it maybe has some enzymes to start breaking it down, and then it moves to a gizzard. Oh, And I'm talking generally, not all birds are like this, but basically it moves to a gizzard that's like um, this device that, that crushes the food and breaks it down, and then it will eventually move into their two stomachs for more processing. So, I, you know, I don't know... Right, I don't know if it would work the same way for birds with rice as as it might work for us.
0: Right, because the crop also is where the pellets are formed when that breakdown happens, right? When birds regurgitate those pellets.
1: Either the crop or the gizzard.
0: Yeah, it's one off the... I I think it
1: might be the gizzard. Gizzard. Yeah,
0: it might be off the side of that. So, folks went, who are listening to this, most birds, I don't know all birds, um, regurgitate in some way, shape, or form uh, excess things that they cannot devour or digest, I should say. So, skeleton, exoskeletons of crawfish are one, fish scales, different things like that. Bones. Bones, yeah. Um, do you know anything about stomach acids of hawks versus owls?
1: <laughs> I do not. No. Um
0: <laughs> not. I've heard that stomach acids in owls is weak and that's why you find whole entire skulls and skeletons of mice and things that they eat whereas when you find hawk pellets their bones are like deteriorated and you know hmm. uh abnormally altered in some ways hmm. and so people who want full skeletons of mice and things they go look for Owl pellets and not hawk pellets, which mm, I thought no, was fascinating. No, I've not heard that. Yeah, and I also believe that hawks rip and tear versus swallowing whole, which is what right. owls do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had an encounter where you stumbled upon something eating something else, like a, a, a hawk or an owl?
1: Um. Y- yes. Um. What comes to mind is osprey. Oh because yeah. regularly you'll see them perched up there they're fish eaters so they've caught the fish and they'll fly up to maybe a, a a you know a telephone pole and eat it on top of that pole and so you can usually see it cuz it's big enough to see you know yeah um i've definitely seen um hawks carrying something away in their talons you know or seen their uh their crop be extended that indicates that they had just recently ate something
0: interesting yeah. Yeah, I've always wondered if you can tell when a bird has just eaten recently because of its weight cuz I saw a tricolored heron one time devour this fish and it this thing was the size of the bird and it stood there and I'm pretty sure that fish was moving around in its stomach as it sat there but I wondered I was like if I cuz I was pretty far away I was like I, there's no way I can I don't know but couldn't have made it but if it had flown off would it have flown off with this, like, you know, unbalanced flight?
1: Um, Yeah, maybe so. Yeah.
0: That's an interesting thing to eat something and have it still be moving in your stomach. Um, There's an old myth about hummingbirds can migrate on the backs of geese.
1: You ever heard that? I have heard that. I'm not sure where that came from. (laughs) Why do you think
0: people came up with that one? Do they think they're incapable of flight? Do, my, do hummingbirds migrate though? They yes, they do. Interesting. Now now that's the question, is how far do they go? Yeah, it
1: disp- it depends on the species. Um it, Yeah. Um but they do migrate. We're seeing more and more of them over winter um with us. Yeah. Because of the warmer winters. I was going to say um, yeah, winters uh, but, are but warmer. But still the vast majority of them migrate. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. And, and, you know, and speaking of that, it it just blows my mind, but to think about ruby-throated hummingbirds that fly nonstop across the Gulf of Mexico, five or 600 miles nonstop, this tiny, tiny bird.
0: I don't understand how that's possible without stopping to eat. No, there's no place to stop. Right.
1: There's no place to drink. You got to go all the way.
0: That is amazing. Have you ever been to the Bronx Zoo? Mm -mm. no when you go into the bronx zoo there is this uh, avian little habitat area and as you make your way through it there comes a room and there's a bunch of doors like a hundred doors and there's a little you can grab the door and open it and it talks about this is 100 birds that live here in new york and as you open each door it tells a story about each bird and i think there's 10 that say this bird moved on to have babies and produce the next generation and every other one is just a horror story about it getting hit or flying into a window or so it's saying that in new york 10 percent of birds make it to reproduce which i think is just alarming i did not know that that was the statistic that it was that low i was really sh- shocked by that words is there anything in the bird world that you were totally shocked by when you learned in this journey of learning about birds for you
1: well well to that to that topic it is really hard to be a, a bird uh, <laughs> right and we're making it harder and harder yes. right uh but the young birds have it even harder it, it's it's not uncommon for the the majority of them to not make it through their first year um with most with a lot of species if they do make it through their first year then their odds increase you know that they'll live um but yeah it's it's hard um and, and a lot of our birds don't live very long anyway. I mean, we have some that, you know, live for a very long time, but the vast majority, especially of our songbirds, don't live for a long time.
0: Right. And songbirds, I think, are classified as passerines. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. What we call those? Mm-hmm. Our Paso- passerine birds are typical birds we see in our backyard. Um, this is a funny one. I think it has an old adage to it. Uh, birds have small brains, therefore they're non-intelligent. Mm. Old myth, huh? Oh, man. man. Yes.
1: Um, If you're familiar with uh, Jennifer Ackerman, she has written a couple of books and just had a new one published, um, What the Owl Knows. But her first two books were The Genius of Birds and now I've forgotten the other one, but Google Jennifer Ackerman. I I love her. Um, And she talks about how, yes, we have under, um, you know, we're just do, doing the typical human thing of thinking, oh, well, just because we don't understand their intelligence, they're not, un-, you know, we think because we don't understand their intelligence that they're not intelligence. Right. Intelligent. And, and then we then we back up and think again and go, oh, we just weren't looking at it the right way. Or we just weren't looking at the right things. That's yeah? right. I mean, like, think about this. Could you build a bird's nest with no hands?
0: Right. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> Could
1: you get to South America? With no GPS unit on your dash, not
0: a chance. I mean, I, maybe if I, me, I if I had genial uh, generations behind me who did that, I think, and that that they do. But I like um, I like telling people. One time, I well, I used to work at Sam's Club in the warehouse, and I'll never forget. I saw a bird in there, and I am pretty sure that bird was in there for about four days. Now, what I like about that concept is that that bird can get trapped in where we live and survive just fine. But if we got <laughs> trapped where it lives, right. you see where I'm going yeah, with this? Absolutely. That's yeah. why I don't think it's okay to equate intelligence to, you know, just these um typical, oh, you know, you can't do algebra, therefore you're not intelligent. <laughs> so I'm like, right. go go live in that dirty pond where that goldfish lives and tell me how intelligent you are. <laughs> right, so, exactly, yeah. Um, or, or maybe...
1: You- You've seen the birds in like um, a grocery store, H E B, yeah, and you hear them, you know, vocalizing, and and then you then you see the the um, in the bird section, you know, where oh, there's mysteriously a, an open package. Uh huh. <laughs> They're very
0: intelligent. They're very I intelligent. and that's exactly what happened at Sam's Club. One of the things that made me think and scratch my head was. Well, where is it getting the water? And then as I cr- cr- turned around this corner, I looked on the ground, and um, the bird was sitting there. I think it was a grackle. I'm like 90% sure it was a grackle. She had turned her head sideways, and there was a water trough in one of the cracks of the, the I guess, where the grout would go in these big, you know, like warehouses. And that's what she was drinking. And I was like, dang, look at her, man. She's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, this,
1: okay, so this reminds me of yeah, being go at ahead. Whole Foods. And there was a grackle outside who had, staff told me they had learned, that bird had learned to set off the automatic door sensor, could get inside, get whatever it was after, I'm not sure, and then get back out. <laughs> just, so, just birds, like I'm pretty sure, are freaking intelligent. They are
0: super <laughs> intelligent. And yeah, if you, I mean, they've talked about Corvids being, having the, I think, four to five-year-old Mm, meaning of a human the intelligence of a four and five year old human that is remarkable um we had talked a little bit about during this migration earlier in this podcast about um powerful storms and that's one of the myths on this uh list here it says small birds can be displaced by powerful storms is that do you think that's still a myth or is that meaning like they can physically be swept away out of their, I guess their nest or anything by these powerful storms?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about hurricanes, um, that those are devastating to the birds, the small birds in those areas. I mean, they'll hunker down, but they will likely not ride that out. Um, <clears throat> some of the most amazing birding in Austin has been when a hurricane, I think it was Hurricane Harvey, was pushing all of the bigger birds up to Austin. They got caught in that wind and it was just coming the right way to bring them all up to Austin. So we had all of these coastal birds up in Austin and we, we were having a great time.
0: I bet. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting to think about that and how they get displaced by these storms. And, but it makes a lot of sense. Do you think that birds have the foresight to know like, whoa, the pressure around here is changing to the point that this is about to be catastrophic. So we need to, you know, get out? Or is it just the fact that they're moving and then they're swept in the currents?
1: I, I think they do, um, have ability to monitor the barometric pressure. I, I kind of feel they do too. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, not, I mean, severe storms here can also, um, cause damage to birds too. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially in during nesting season, especially those birds that are nesting out in the open, you know, those, um, they can be blown out of their nests, their nests can be totally blown down, um, yeah, so, yes.
0: Do you think it's difficult to get Purple Martins to come live in those little houses that they build <laughs> for everybody?
1: Um, well, some landlords tell me they put up the houses and the birds are just right there. And others say, oh, it's been two or three years and I haven't gotten a bird. So purple martins are very uh, picky when it comes to the habitat that they like. And they want um, the, the eastern population is totally dependent on human-made housing. So they are dependent on those gourds or the houses that we put up. Uh, but they don't want them just anywhere. They want them in an open area but close to people. So, um, and they like it near water. They probably like it best near water. Um, so if you have all of that, I think your, your odds are pretty good, but then sometimes just the birds just don't come
0: right. for a while. <laughs> we, and, and do you think that, I don't know, I might be confusing this totally, but in Marymore mm-hmm. Sea Park, are you familiar with that park?
1: Oh, uh, I was just there the other day, so, so somewhat familiar with it.
0: They have a big wildflower field there, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there's like this chimney, and I think that's a swift.
1: Chimney swift uh, Yeah, mm-hmm. is
0: that what that is? But I've never seen a bird go in or out of that thing, and that thing's been there probably 15 years.
1: Well, typically with chimney swifts, they're another one that has had to adapt to use human-made housing. Like if you have an old chimney, right, with the with a mortar and such on the inside, then they will they will get it and it's not capped on top. They will use that. Um and and also we put up chimney swift towers so that because they need they need the nesting space. And so they will typically just drop in very quick. They're going to drop in the very top of it yeah, and go down. And so if you're not just sitting there watching, they may actually be in there uh, and flying in and out, and you just missed it.
0: Got it. And are they migrating to the swifts? They do the migrate. Swiss? They
1: okay. also eat um, um, insects, and so they migrate.
0: Right. Um, some of the other things here, questions, questions. Um, sap suckers you familiar with those Mm -hmm. yeah so they make a lot of holes in trees around here Mm -hmm. and a lot of people are confused by what those holes are and is there any way you can shed some light on that
1: yes so they're drilling those holes out to cause sap to come to the surface and they will either eat the sap or they'll eat the insects or maybe both that come to that and Coincidentally, hummingbirds will sometimes check out that too, either uh, for the insects or for the sap.
0: Yeah. Very cool. So, so
1: yeah, it's really cool to see, you know, these long, these rows of those little holes in a tree. And even if you don't see the sap sucker, you know that one has been there at some point in the past.
0: Yeah, they are all over the sycamore trees at Roy Guerrero. Just oh, okay. Everywhere. Have you ever been to Roche? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Great, that's a beautiful great birding place. Beautiful place to go birding along the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, a couple of uh, last few here says uh, you need to take birds found on the ground to animal shelters. Is that true?
1: So I'm assuming that they're talking about baby birds that are found right. on the ground. Um, you shouldn't you shouldn't monitor them, right? Because uh, potentially they have. They're supposed to be on the ground. Uh, Potentially, maybe they did fall out of their nest a little early, but but usually their parents are there and keeping an eye on them. And so um, don't just grab them up and take them to wildlife rescue or whatever. Kind of monitor the situation. Uh, The biggest challenge with that is that uh, free-roaming cats –
0: Mm. whether
1: they're feral or they're loved and treated very good they're hunters yeah. and they devastate our wildlife and so just make sure that you know if that bird on the ground there's a cat nearby that bird on the ground then definitely put it put try to put the bird up in a tree or somewhere where the cat can't get to it got
0: it that's the best advice i've heard is monitor it because i think so many people see oh no baby bird now if it's like pink and it's like mm-hmm. falling out of the nest. I think that's a different situation. But if it's like, looks like a little fledgling right. and it's yes. just poofed up on the ground, we found a, uh, Eastern screech owl in the road the other day. And these people all just came out of their house and, like panicking. And they're like, "Call oh, the wildlife rescue. I was like, no mom just flew away like two seconds ago. I saw it on my dash cam. Like it's all good. <laughs> she's just there. It's night and they're feeding and he's getting here. He or she's getting used to everything. So that's what's going on. And, um, so, yeah, they just held off, and so that's kind of what I advice I gave to them, too, is I was like, let's just monitor it, make sure that you're seeing what I'm seeing. Yeah. And then they did. So, yeah.
1: But but you're right. If you have the little pink birds that have very little feathers, or uh, then then something bad has happened. Those shouldn't be out of the nest. And, and they will typically uh, need help pretty soon because they have no ability to keep themselves warm. And so, yeah, yeah the, those would need help pretty quick.
0: Right. So, yeah, finally, um, I'm just going to open it up for you to share anything fun, uh, weird bird facts, uh, your best bird encounter, etc. And, yeah.
1: Can I invite everybody to Purple Martin parties?
0: Yes, please do.
1: So, Travis Audubon has, well, for many, many years, there has been a huge roost of Purple Martins in Austin area. This is when the Martins have finished raising their young, they come, they... They are diurnal migrants, so they migrate during the day. And at night, they come together in these roosts with many other martins to spend the night. Safety in numbers, right? And so Austin has been fortunate to have this roost, or at least one roost, maybe two on some years, um, with many, many purple martins. And for many years, it was up at Highland Mall for like mid 80s through at least the, like 2015 it was there somewhere around the mall in those little pockets of trees right mm-hmm. and then some ACC bought it and they started to do a little construction and the birds moved to Capitol Plaza and they were in that area for a while and then one year we could not find them we we always go out in June and look for the roost and um somebody notified us using Doppler radar that they saw what looked like a signature of a roost up in Round Rock. And so we went up there and the birds were up in Round Rock. They came back to Austin a few years later, but this year they're up in Round Rock at La Frontera uh, Shopping Center. And so um, I think it was like twin, 2009, Travis, saw, we, we some of us decided that You know, the birders of Austin knew about this huge phenomenon, this amazing phenomenon of nature, right? But nobody outside of the birding community knew. And we were just, we were thinking that, oh my gosh, this is so fantastic that everybody should get to experience this, right? Whether they're a birder or not. And so we started having Purple Martin parties where we would, on, you know, three or four weekends in the summer, this is a thing that's happening during the summer, we would Put out press releases we would put it on our social media we'd put it on our website and we'd have these purple martin parties and we would invite people out we would have people educating the attendees telling them what they're seeing you know identifying purple martins telling them answering all their questions so it has been great success to have those parties and so we're in the midst of those parties now and what happens is that as you know, maybe 30 minutes before it gets dark, the birds start coming into the roost site, and there'll be a few birds coming in really high in the sky early. And then, as the night progresses, more and more come in, and they don't just come in and plop down in the trees, they swirl around and vocalize and put on this amazing show. And so, when you have a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or maybe four hundred thousand purple martins swirling overhead. It's phenomenal. It is absolutely something that everyone should see. So
0: um, that's a lot. I didn't know you were going to say that many.
1: Yeah. Well. <laughs> well. Okay. Well, that's another topic about. How, I wish there was some way to actually count them. We don't know, but but there's a lot of birds. And so we had our first two last Friday and Saturday nights. We'll be having them on Friday and Saturday nights for the next three weekends up at La Frontera. Um, Shopping center, so I encourage everybody if you're anywhere close to us here in Austin, maybe not even close, come come to Austin and see our amazing roost. There's more information on travisautobahn.org, our Purple
0: Martin page. That is amazing, Sheila. I I thought you were going to say like probably five thousand. You, yeah. you yeah. went above 100,000 birds. I didn't know it was that many. Yeah,
1: you're going to wow. have to come see it.
0: That's like watching the bat cave south of here, you know when there's like 17 million bats leave that cave, it takes like 4 hours for you to watch them all leave. That's like yeah. millions of of just I don't know, it's incredible to know they're going out every day and gathering resources and coming back. Right. It's like yes. wow, they're just helping us y'all. Are they eating mosquitoes?
1: no but hang on to that question so let me speak to the bat thing yeah so when we first started having the purple martin parties the birds were at highland mall and so that first year we had so many people from the neighborhood come come to the party and go i have lived here for 30 years and i had no idea this was going on so it was really really cool to get to to show these people you know these cool birds and this cool spectacle um But many people told us, unsolicited by us, that, oh, my God, this is better than the bats. Yeah. And the bats are super cool.
0: They're super cool. The Congress Bridge thing's neat.
1: Yeah, but they can just kind of fly out and go away, right? These birds are coming in. They swirl around, and then they go to to bed, so to speak. Well, anyway, you, You should come out and compare it yourself and see what you think.
0: I was going to say, you will see me soon, because I'm coming to see the Purple Martin party. Excellent. I'm okay. really excited about that.
1: Yeah. Now, S- now back to the mosquito thing. Yeah. They don't eat a bunch of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are tiny, tiny, and these uh, Purple Martins are North America's largest swallow. So, they're about eight inches long, their body, and about 15-inch wingspan. So, they're, they're pretty big birds. Um, and they also hunt very high in the sky. So, they eat, um, they eat flying fire ants which is a a recent discovery and then they eat um uh, lots of other insects like dragonflies butterflies um and then some you know insects that we probably want them
0: to eat sure (laughs) that's awesome Yeah, i'm just so enamored now to go out there and see a couple hundred thousand purple martins dancing in the sky for me because you know you get to see the scissor tail flycatcher dances and you get to see those types of things but I'm, I'm eager now. So I'm jotting it on my calendar. Excellent. Y'all.
1: Excellent. I'll see you out there.
0: Yeah. Well, Sheila, thank you again. It's been an honor and a pleasure having you chat about birds. I, I don't think we could stop talking. I'm sure we could go another 10 hours cause I just love birds and it's so much fun to meet people who are so passionate about nature and just willing to sit down and share some stories and some information about how we can better connect to birds. So thank you for being here.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Awesome. We'll see y'all in the next one. Take care. Bye, everybody.